Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we know that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for the men and women of righteousness. And so we come to your word expectantly. We pray that you will uh, overrule our sinful thoughts and my sinful words, and that you will use this word to feed us and to give us strength to raise the children you've given us. And today, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our strength and our Redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had one other thing I wanted to say. Um, I'm in the back usually before I come up. And so I have a chance to observe you with your children from behind. And I almost made, uh, if you would all turn and look at, raise your hand. And do you see what he's doing And I want all of you fathers to take note of, because I see this every week, and there are other fathers that are like this. In church, always take the child that is most... Hmm? Lively, rebellious, sullen, bitter, and seat that child next to you and spend the service holding them, rubbing their head, having them rub the veins on your hands. Be physical with your children during worship. Okay? It's a very important thing that good fathers do. What you want is to imprint your tenderness on your child as they sit under the preaching and worship of God. You want to bond with them at that most important time of the week. And so, church is a wonderful time. Mary Lee and all her siblings remember growing up, sitting next to Dad Taylor, and what they do is they trace the veins in his hands during worship. Uh, My dad would rub our shoulders. You know, it led to a very funny thing one time. I was, you know, I was a piece, I still am a piece of work. But anyhow, my father had come home from the trip and brought a little buzzer that you put on your middle finger and you'd shake somebody's hand. Oh! You know, it would buzz. And he told me not to take it to church. And, of course, what are you going to do when you get a gift like that? You're going to take it to church, show it to your friends, you know. So I'd squirreled it away in my pocket, and we're sitting in worship. And Dad reaches over to rub my leg, and he hits the buzzer, you know. (laughs) And that was the Sunday that I stopped lying. Because he took me to another man, and I went home with that man, and that man prayed that I would stop lying because I lied about everything. And uh, so anyhow, in church, sit with your children, okay? Bond with your children during worship so that they remember when they become adults that the most affectionate time of, of each week was sitting next to their daddy in church, okay? 
You don't have to pay me for that one. Should I start the timer? I, I, think, I think I better not. I, I think I better let the timer keep going. You know. All right. Let's hear the word of God as it is in, found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, the story of the wise men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I want you to, I was talking to Benny, who has now become Ben. He's a man and married to Katie. And soon, when he gets a hood, he'll probably have to start calling him Benjamin. Well, I was talking to Benny this week, and Benny said that his father and his grandfather had made the point that you should never quote anybody in your sermons, that you should quote scripture. Well, I immediately realized that, you know, Benny's been listening to me preach a long time and has heard me quote Calvin. And so I tried to explain to Benny why, he wasn't being critical, but I tried to explain to him why it was that I quote Calvin a lot. And here's the reason. Every single time I read a text of scripture, I know what evangelicals are going to say about it. I know what the church in America is going to say about it. I've grown up in in evangelical, Bible-believing churches, right? I know what they're going to say about every text. And what they're always going to say, from my tradition, is something positive. And what you know they will never say is anything negative, unless it's about Washington or, you know, the United Nations or... You know, but never anything negative about the church and about the people of God. Never. No warnings, no repentance. It'll just be positive, right? And so I read Calvin, and I read Luther, or read old guys, you know, Matthew Henry, read the old Geneva series of commentaries of Banner of Truth, read even Lloyd-Jones, because I know that when I read them, I'm going to hear tunes that I never, ever hear any from anyone today. Okay? And I want you to know that I'm reading these people so that you don't get into a rut of thinking that I'm the one that's weird. I am not weird. 
If you had read Matthew, Henry, and Calvin before every sermon I've given, you would understand why I said what I say. Here, have at it. If you know what I'm going to preach next week, read Calvin. And, and you won't be bored during the sermon, but you may yawn. I am not weird. Now, I want to make that point this morning because how would the normal church in America preach this text today? And you know how they do it. They would go on and on about how the three wise men are the first fruits of the Gentiles. They would say how beautiful of God that he takes men of a somewhat religious sort of superstitious but also philosophical eastern land, you know, Persia, Iraq, Iran, and he brings them to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this is typical. This is, this is a prediction. This is what is going to happen in the new covenant, that God is going to include all men. All right. And so they would go on about that. And it's true. It's very true. Then they would go on about the gifts that the wise men bring. And they would talk about, these are their gifts. What are your gifts? Are we stingy in our worship of God, or are we generous? Do we have anything like the, the rejoicing exceedingly with great joy? I mean, that's over the top just in wordage, you know? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy, you know? That indicates something is going on that we don't see going on in churches today. Certainly not in Reformed churches. And that would be the limit of the sermon on the story of the Magi. That would be it. It would be positive. It would have hopeful themes. It would tell us the importance of evangelism. It would, it would talk about how worship should be joyful. And now let us pray. That is not what the text says. And that is not what our fathers in the faith have said about this text. This account that we just read is an incredible rebuke to evangelical Christians and their pastors and their elders and their seminary professors. And you say, well, no, there were no evangelicals back in Jerusalem. Okay, they were scribes and Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Come on, grow up. You don't read any other book so literally. Yeah, they aren't evangelicals in seminary. The scribes and Pharisees and Sanhedrin, all right? Well, they weren't the church. Yeah, they were the church. These were the people that had the prophecies of the coming Messiah. They were God's people. That's why they had the book. They had the book. We have the book, all right? And the story of the Magi is the story of God. God's people and God's religious leaders having no interest in Jesus Christ. And the minute he began to press against them, they hated him and then they killed him. That's the story of the Gospels. And the apostle of love, John, has that story at fever pitch. The one who was most loving and most in tune with the love of Jesus Christ. I had his head on the breast of Jesus in the upper room. He's the one that makes this conflict. And for heaven's sakes, what other book, what other movie have you ever watched or read where you have wanted there to be no conflict? 
there always have to be bad guys. Otherwise, who's going to, who, I mean, you're not even interested in it. And so why do we cultivate the ability to not see the conflict in Scripture? Why? And the reason is that again and again and again, the account of Scripture is an account of God's people rebelling against him. That's why. And we don't want to hear that because we want to think the fact that we're here this morning means that we love God and we're obedient. But guess what? I'm not. I am not. And guess what? Neither are you. And that's why Scripture is helpful. Because then you begin to understand grace. That even though we are the sons and daughters of God, we've been baptized, we come to the Lord's table, and then rebel against him. That his grace is for us. For his rebellious people. And so what is the conflict in this story? Well, now read it with eyes to see it. Stop being superficial. Stop being addicted to the lightness of your life and world. And get some depth to your faith so that you begin to read Scripture with understanding. And now let's go to the text. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea, and so we, we learned a couple weeks ago that that's where it was prophesied, that's where he would be born. Bethlehem was about six miles southwest of Jerusalem, all right? It was, a, it was the home of King David, but it wasn't anything special, right? Jerusalem was special. After Jesus was born, we don't know when, from uh, Herod decreeing that every child from two years old and under would be killed by his soldiers, we ha- we, all we know is that somewhere between two years and birth, this happened. We don't really know when. It just says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and then it says in the days of Herod the king. Notice the phrase, the king, Herod the king. That's the plot. Why is that the plot? Well, who else is a king here? Jesus. He's the king of the Jews. No, Herod's the king. Okay, you feel the tension coming. All right? Herod, the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Magi uh, is a word that indicates that they were something like philosopher uh, astronomers. Um, Except back then, (laughs) this is kind of funny. I shouldn't say except back then. What I should say is scientists are always religious. The only question is what their religion is, right? And back then, everybody understood that a philosopher astronomer was a religious leader. They were like a priestly caste, okay? Just like in Bloomington, the professors, priestly caste. I'm really serious about that, okay. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, some people say they could have been Jews. Now, the whole symbolism is lost. They're from the east, they're from Iran, and they travel a long distance following a star. And they arrive in Jerusalem, and that makes sense because it's the city in the area. That's where you would go to find the religious leaders, to find the historical records, to get counsel about where your pilgrimage was going to take you, okay? Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying... 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, you remember earlier it says Herod the king. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they've traveled west. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? All right, the plot thickens, doesn't it? It says they were saying. It doesn't say that they said. All right, so present participle. That means that they were again and again and again. Hey, hey, where, hey, 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 where, rup, 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 rup. and pretty soon the entire city knows that these three unbelievably wealthy and sophisticated people from Persia have come bearing unbelievable amounts of wealth, you know, and that they're asking for the one that was born king of the Jews, all right? When Herod, now what is he? Again, the king. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. The plot thickens. And all Jerusalem with him. Now we all know why Herod was troubled, right? Herod's troubled because this is a threat to the authority and power that he has. You know, generally you don't have two kings. The king is dead. Long live the king, right? Not the king is born. Long live both kings. No. Uh, And so Herod is troubled, but then it says that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would Jerusalem be troubled that their Messiah has been born? I mean, honestly, they're subjugated. They're under Rome. They're under Herod. They don't like this. And all of a sudden, they hear that the Messiah that they've been waiting centuries for has been born, you know, and that they followed a star, you know. You would think that everybody would be going, whoa, what's going on here? Where? But that's not how they respond. They're troubled. Why would they be troubled? Well, they're troubled for the same reason that a wife whose husband stops drinking is troubled. She's complained for 40 years about her husband drinking. And he stops, and what does she do? She divorces him. All of us have a propensity to love the present that we know, even though it's a lousy present, because it feels secure to us. None of us like change. And so really, the thought of having a Messiah come was not a happy thought to God's people, to the church. It was not happy time for evangelicals to have Jesus show up in Wheaton. Okay? Because you get used to materialism, you get used to uh, educationism, you get used to boredom, you get used to movies, you get used to everything that is our bondage today, and you love it instead of loving Jesus. And that was the same thing with the Jews in Jerusalem. Even though they were subjugated, even though they were under the authority of the Roman Empire and paying taxes, all the world must be taxed, They were troubled because they had established an equilibrium. They had established normal. They had established, uh, we'll give them the kingdom of the civil magistrate, and we will reserve for ourselves the kingdom of the ecclesiastical magistrate. They were perfectly ensconced in a two-kingdom world. 
And they didn't have to answer for that kingdom. That was Herod. That was the Romans. And even though they had to pay taxes and they were humiliated by it, the Romans knew enough to leave the Jews alone in their religion. Okay? And the Pharisees and Sadducees had mediated the conflict in such a way that they, it's just amazing, tongue-in-cheek, amazing, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Sanhedrin had mediated it all in such a way that, amazingly, they were lifted up. (laughs) They were the key people in all of the peace. And you see this all through the Gospels where they keep getting jealous and angry because Jesus comes preaching. And preaching can never handle the mixture, the admixture of the civil magistrate and the ecclesiastical magistrate who agree to stay off each other's turf. Right? And so what? So what? All Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. Now what does that teach us? What that teaches us is, as the people of God, we actually would not be happy for Jesus to come. Okay? We may have been abused as a young child, and we have gone very, very attached to our bitterness. And Jesus calls us to forgive as we've been forgiven. And he says, if you don't forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father won't forgive yours. You see? Everybody's religious. Everybody has a religion. But when Jesus comes up close, it is not a happy experience for people who have grown attached to their sins. And that's what we can say about Herod and we can say about Jerusalem, that they were attached to their sin. And so you come up against them with the Messiah, and the Messiah is somebody, and you know, this is kind of funny, but, I mean, <laughs> what's the point of having a Messiah if he actually shows up? I mean, you get the point. It's kind of funny. A Messiah is somebody you look forward to. He shouldn't come, <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden, there is good indication the Messiah has come, <laughs> you know? And it's like, oh, no, what are we going to do now? You know, no more waiting for Godot, you know? All Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. So this is the seminary professors, the pastors, and the elders. All, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Well, come on. They all knew it, and they all immediately testified to where he was going to be born. In other words, none of them were ignorant of the Messiah. Herod wasn't ignorant. It all made sense to him. He called them in informally because they, remember, the two-kingdom world, you know, they had the the spiritual thing, you know, and so they they said to him, Bethlehem, right? That's where he's going to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Now, I want to make a point about this uh, statement. This is a quotation from the Old Testament. If you look at the text, you'll see that it's all uppercase. And that's an indication that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. But if you were to go to the Old Testament and you were to look at this actual statement, you'd find that there's a significant difference between what it says here 
in the book of Matthew and what it says in the Old Testament. And because all of us have been taught that we should be defensive of the Bible's inspiration and and should be uptight that there's ever any error, we would try to explain that really, you know, Matthew, when he quotes the Old Testament, he's not really doing violence to the text, you know, that, that Matthew really sort of gets the sense. But the problem is, in the Old Testament, the focus is on how humble and small Bethlehem is, And here you can see that they've kind of tried to sort of make it that, but also something else, right? And it says, by no means least. Well, that's like a double negative, you know? And and what you know is that everybody is uptight here, right? By no means least, but Bethlehem is least, but by no means least. And so people will argue about whether this is an error on the part of Matthew. Now listen, Matthew knew what the actual text, whether it was the Septuagint or it was Hebrew, he knew the text of this prophecy. Everybody knew the text. So number one, don't assume that the authors of, especially the Gospels, don't assume they're idiots. It's just, sometimes reading commentaries today, you think that the one thing everybody agrees on is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were idiots, you know, because you're always trying to clean up after them. All right, that's the first thing. They're not idiots, you know, they knew what it said in the Old Testament. But then the second thing is, we do this kind of quotation all the time. It's only in the modern world that we've said, put quote marks around it, and then don't alter the words. And if you alter a word, put the words you've altered in brackets, not in parentheses, right? Because that's what the Chicago Manual style says to do. And so, Matthew didn't do it. Naughty, naughty Matthew. Look, when I read a book to my kids, well, no, I don't read books to my kids anymore. Okay, when I used to read books to my kids, and sometimes if I'm privileged to read books to my grandchildren, you know they want to hear the same book over and over and over and over and over again, right? And so to deal with the boredom often, I would, as I read, without altering my cadence at all, I would insert, and they went to the moon, or, and they drowned in the sea. Or something, you know, and, you know, pat the bunny, pat the bunny, pat the bunny, drowned in the sea, pat the bunny, you know. <laughs> Alexander is no good, terrible, horrible, very bad day. And, and then he got a lollipop. No, no, Alexander doesn't get lollipops in that book, you know. Why would I do that? Well, because whatever I'd put in would, would bounce them out of the cadence, and immediately they would say to me, you know, Bop or Dad, that's not what it says. Read what it says, right? Some of you have done this, right? If you don't, try it. It's fun. It'll keep you awake, <laughs> you know? And, and now look at Matthew. This is what he does. It's so obvious. He alters the quotation to make the point. And it makes the point beautifully because what they all knew was that the prophecy was like Bethlehem is nothing, And then they're hearing that the king of kings and lord of lords was born there. And so Matthew changes the middle of the quotation. They know he did it. They had the point made. And so listen, all through history, and Calvin does it at this point in the text, what they say is, look, any time the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, 
it gets the quote right. And I know we're all tempted to say, but no, he gets it wrong here. No, he doesn't get it wrong. Because he is writing, and Calvin actually uses the word here, what the Holy Spirit dictated to him. Now, I'm not going to die on the hill of dictation, right? It's what every seminary president. It's not dictation theory. Of, okay, all right, okay. I, I got it, right? But the Holy Spirit was communicating the glory and the humility at the same time. That's why the quotation has changed. And this doesn't make us uptight about Scripture being God's work. Whatever in the New Testament is quoted from the Old Testament, the quotation is accurate. And you know why? Because the author is the same. The Holy Spirit doesn't disagree with himself. All right. Verse 7, Then Herod, and notice the little word secretly, called the Magi. Why did he call them secretly? Well, he called them secretly because he was afraid. And he did not want God's people to know that he was afraid of a little baby. And so he called them secretly. He kept his fear. At this point, what Calvin said is what? He says, he says, all tyrants are fearful. You know, we see this with, with our president. He's a bit of a tyrant. And the one thing you can see by everything he does is that he lives in fear. If you can't see that, talk to me afterwards and I'll be glad to show it to you. But men recognize this about him. Men that are confident are not really loud. You know, generally they're quiet. Men that are strong are quiet. Men that are weak are loud. And so Herod is a great tyrant. And he does it secretly because he's scared. He's fearful. He secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. This is why we say that, the ba that he could have been anywhere from zero to two years old at this time. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. This is more of the conflict where what's at stake is life and death. We all know what's being contemplated here is murder. We've read the rest of the story. We know that the entire story of Jesus is this amazing account of how he escaped murder until he was 33 years old. We all know. That's the plot of the New Testament. And we also know that he died precisely when his father ordained that he died. And so here we have God doing what God does, which is what? Protecting his son until he sends him to the cross. One of the things that's interesting here is that, and again, Calvin points to this, he says it, it was so ridiculous and stupid that Herod didn't just send an escort with them. You know, why would he ask them to come back? And then Calvin makes the point that God's always stupefying the enemies of the church. That he just has the enemies of the church hit us at the points we're not vulnerable. You ever notice that, that people that hate you for your faith don't quite know where to attack you. You know, they attack you, but, you know, they attack you for not loving your wife, and you adore your wife. 
And pretty soon it becomes clear because your daughters sit in your lap during evening worship. Right? No daughter sits in the lap of her dad if he hates their mother. And you can see this, that God is constantly protecting his people and his church by stupefying, making stupid the enemies of the church. I thought that was a beautiful point. Anyhow, he doesn't send escorts. He tells them, hey, come back to me, you know. Uh, uh, Snake eyes, you know. Come back to me. Verse 9, after hearing the king, again, that, 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 that plot, you know, the king, the king, the king, the king. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star. Now notice this. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them. It's clear the star wasn't there when they got to Jerusalem. Otherwise, they just keep following the star. And so why is it that the star left them when they got to Jerusalem, but then as soon as they left to go to Bethlehem, the star started up again? Why? Listen, this entire story is a condemnation and rebuke to God's people, to the church. Do you see this? And again, I'm going to quote Calvin. Calvin says that this is adding to the ignominy, to the, to the shame of the people of God, that they even had these men show up in Jerusalem, causing the whole city to know. The whole city knew. And what is the point to be made from this? After they went their way, and who went with them? Nobody. Nobody went with them. None of God's people really actually, when push came to shove, none of them wanted to see Jesus. None of them. And that's me. And that's you. You don't really love Jesus. You really don't want his holiness. And so, if you could, you'd really stay away. You know, why do I come to church here? Is it because I get paid? Eh, that's a motivator. Is it because the elders would discipline me if I didn't come? Eh, that's a motivator. Think of all the reasons you have to be here this morning. They're complicated, aren't they? And where in the hierarchy is your desire to be holy as he is holy? You know? Listen, Christians are weak. Christians are in need of sanctification without which no man will see God. And so don't ever resent the church for pointing your sin out to you. This is the one safe place where we can admit our sin and where we'll be loved and where we'll be helped. And 
that's why the church needs to continue to be a place of love because sometimes only love will bring people here because they really don't want to hear anything about Jesus this particular Sunday. And that's probably true of a whole bunch of you here this morning. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's obviously something wrong with you not wanting to be holy and not wanting to meet God in worship. But God is never, uh, how would you say it, a disembodied mystical spiritual uh, reality without flesh. You know, that's why you have the sacraments. They're flesh. That's why you have the people sitting next to you. That's why your parents don't give you a choice. You're going to come, right? All of this helps us to return to God. And you look at Jesus as he loves people, and it's so funny because when he's loving them on a mountain and preaching a long sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, guess what? You'll find again and again when he teaches, what does he do? And he knows before he does it that they're going to return only because they want him to do that again. And what is that? One of the that is him taking their children in his arms and blessing them. Another of the that is he feeds them. He, and so here we see the fact that not one of the church people, not one evangelical, not one Pharisee went with them to worship Jesus. Not one. Not one. And that's helpful. Because then we realize that Jesus did come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we're not just lost when we first come to Jesus. We're lost every single day of our lives until we're glorified. And we're in the presence of the Lord. And so the church is an assembly of lost people who have been found. And so they knew because the star stopped, the wise men went into Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem knew. All of Jerusalem knew. Go to Bethlehem. Not one of the Jerusalem people went to Bethlehem. Okay? But then, as soon as they left, the star in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, and this I love, they, they what? This is something that many of you refuse to do. As a matter of fact, I can see your faces sometimes in worship, and I see you, and what you're saying, I'll be damned if I'm going to raise my hands. But what does it say about the wise men? What it says is they rejoiced, what? Exceedingly with great joy. Humble yourself. These wise men were much more important and smarter than you are. Lift your hands. If our worship leader tells you to lift your hands, if he lifts his hands, lift your hands. It ain't going to kill you. And you will look more like the wise men who fell down. It is so wicked today how we think we have the right to worship without any humility. And it just feels so contrary. Every time I lift my hands, I feel like an idiot. I mean, honestly, every... I've been thinking for years, I hope someday I get over this. (laughs) You know? Listen, we all feel stupid, but use your bodies to lead your heart. Would you please? It's not accidental that Scripture records that they fell down and worshipped him. It would be pathetic if it said, and they worshipped him. I mean, honestly. 
The Bible is written for Presbyterians. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, it's a wonderful thing that to get Jesus, his son, to be born in Bethlehem, that God had Caesar Augustus do a census. It's also a wonderful thing that knowing they'd have to go to Egypt, that knowing they'd have to go to Egypt, that God provided by sending philosopher astronomers from Persia with wealth to Bethlehem. I mean, think about this. I mean, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so they bring their gifts and they worship him, and and guess what? Joseph and Mary are set as they care for Jesus. Isn't that sweet? And then the last verse, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Just a couple points, I'll be done. Number one, both the star and the dream were God leading them. This can be abused. When God speaks to you, listen to him. Today, if you hear his voice. And you say, oh, he doesn't speak through dreams anymore. I say, yes, he does. He speaks through dreams all the time. If I had you raise your hands right now when God has given you direction in your life through a dream, I don't even know how many people would raise their hands. But it would be a fair number, and I'd be one of them. And not just once in my life. And sometimes what he tells me in dreams is horrible. And sometimes it's wonderful. It's only happened a few times. But listen, think of all the reasons that they could have thought, well, no, I'm, I'm gonna, he's king. I'm going to go back and obey him. You know, I'm gonna, but no, God said, in a dream, don't you go back. And so what? They submitted to God. And they had submitted to God with the star. Okay? So that's one thing. These wise men don't take for granted that they followed the star and they followed the dream. All right. The other thing is, now you see how all through this story, it is God relegating the people of God. Do you see this in here? I was explaining to J.C. right before the service. By the way, we have Nicholas and JC here next to Stephen and Zebra. We love you. And we're happy you're home. Welcome home. He serves in the military, and we're thankful for men that serve in the military. Anyhow, I was explaining to her what relegation means. Over in England in the Premier League is the best illustration I know where every year, what is it, two or three? It's three. So they've got the major leagues and then AAA and AA like in, in baseball, but But the difference is, automatically, by law, three teams go down to the lower league and three teams there come up every year. And so you know going in the year, three teams are going to be relegated. What does relegate mean? They must decrease and the others must increase. Relegation. God is relegating his people from the very beginning of the birth of his son. 
God is humbling his people. God is exposing them in their sinfulness and their lack of faith. God is exposing them in their hypocrisy. And all of that is good. Because that's what Jesus came to save. All right? So don't struggle against it. Cop to it. Ask yourself, would I have gone to Bethlehem? And be honest. No, because my wife had the turkey dinner cooked. Oh, well, that's an important thing. Look, this is who we are. And this is why we come to Jesus every single week. We confess our sins and we sing. And then we sit under the preaching. And then when we leave, we're so happy because we see who we are and we see who God is. And it gives us a catharsis, the catharsis of faith, of knowing that Jesus came to seek and to save what's lost, and there's nobody more lost than a religious man with no religion. Right? So, that's the text. That's the conflict in the text. That's the admonition and the rebuke and the censuring of the text. And that's the worship in the text. So now as we close our worship, the band comes forward to lead us, the musicians. Uh, Try Try to emulate. You know the word emulate? You know? Try to emulate the wise men in your worship. Have something about your body that indicates that you're rejoicing exceedingly. Come on. With great joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would you please help us to leave Jerusalem? and to go before your Son, and to prostrate ourselves, and to rejoice exceedingly with great joy that we have the privilege of knowing him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.